0: Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Jennifer Amon. She is a senior fellow in ACEEE's building program. In this role, she develops and supports strategic directions for the organization's efforts to improve efficiency in homes and commercial buildings. Since joining ACEEE in 1997. I'm going to ask her what the acronym stands for in a second, don't worry. She has written and presented extensively on buildings and equipment efficiency, te- efficiency technologies, policies, and programs. Her current work focuses on maximizing energy savings from key building policies including building codes, performance standards, and appliance standards. Scaling up deep retrofits and building decarbonization, improving efficiency in indoor agriculture, and analyzing new opportunities for energy efficiency in the building sector. She also leads content development for ACEEE's consumer-focused website, Smarter House. Jennifer serves on the Board of Directors of the Attachments Energy Rating Council and the Resource Innovation Institute. Jennifer earned a Master of Environmental Studies from Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Studies from Trinity University. Her social media handles will be available on the Get a Grip Online website. But for right now, Greg, hey, man, I want to get a little crazy with you, brother. Technical Consumer Products, tcpi.com, baby.
1: Keep the corn in the field, Mike. That's where it belongs. Use TCP's corn cob killer to retrofit HID lamps. Compact size, lightweight, can be mounted any way you need it to be. Bypasses a ballast. It's going to fit in the fixture. And it's 22K, 4K, 5K. And the best part is... Two hundred lumens per watt. I haven't seen anyone else be able to state that yet.
0: That's not the best part.
1: Oh, what is? Uh, the best part happens to be that it comes in exactly the shape
0: of existing HID lights, which makes oh, it so easy to retrofit into those, you know, the ones that are left over now. I mean, Toronto's largely most of the lights are already LED, but you have these weird ones like in concrete lights and stuff like. I just I just spec thirty of the corn cob killers for a condo downtown. Their terrace has these in concrete lights. Yeah and very difficult to retrofit, very difficult to replace. We're going to paint them, and we're going to hit them with the corncob killer. That's right, folks. So go to tcpi.com, the craziest folks in lighting. And, of course, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. We've got a conference coming up, Greg Eric, September 13th in Dallas, Texas.
1: It'll be there. Check it be out. there.
0: Be square. And, of course, Ellis Evolve. Get your people in it. Get yourself in it. Ellis Evolve is the lighting industry's most, what is it, most innovative educational program. But for right now, hello, Jennifer Amon. Hello. Please. It's good to what be is here. The, Yeah, thank you. What does ACEE, the acronym, stand for?
2: Okay, well, to make it a little easier, we say ACEE, and okay. it's the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy.
0: So she's cringing there while I'm going I can she's like, oh, gosh, this guy's got to do his show prep better.
2: Well, it's also because my name's Jennifer Amon.
0: Amen. But no oh, worries. Man. Where's the show prep? <laughs> Come on, sucker. How many episodes are we in here, and I can't even get that these things right? Oh my god. Well, Greg, kick it off, brother.
1: <laughs> I'll go we hide in the did. corner. I'm gonna go hide in the corner. <laughs> You're out. All right. Uh, so what? What year was this formed? The AC Triple E. I'll say it right. Uh,
2: 1980. So yeah, really. 1980. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the organization really came about um, after the uh, oil shocks and other energy uh, crises of the 1970s. I'm sure, you know, you guys don't remember that, nor do I. We're all too young, but um, they certainly, uh, you know, at that time, a group of uh, scientists uh, working at the various national labs uh, became interested in the idea that uh, we could uh, use energy efficiency as an energy resource. Uh, you know, kind of go and mine energy waste as a way to recapture energy resources. And so they started ACEEE as a way to uh, share information between scientists and researchers and uh, policymakers and others to advance uh, energy efficiency throughout the economy.
1: And who funds the organization?
2: So we're largely funded by foundations, private uh, philanthropists, philanthropic uh, foundations. Uh, we also do some project work um, with uh, your groups of uh, utilities, the regional market transformation organizations that work on energy efficiency programs around the country, and um, also a little bit of funding from uh, the federal government. Got
1: it. And it's been that way as it, as it changed in terms of who you get the funding from on a year-to-year basis, or is it locked in for good? This is where it comes from.
2: That's pretty much where we've always had our mix of funding. You know, things uh, change as uh, you know the economy changes. After the dot com bust, you know, some of the foundations uh, lost some of their funding. So you know that led us to scramble a little bit for a few years. But for the most part, we've uh, we've had uh, we've been successful in uh, maintaining that type of philanthropic funding and uh, to really maintain the base of our the base of our. Um, uh, Overall, overall funding as we've grown through the years.
0: Do you have one like major philanthropic donor that you could share with us? Is there, um, or is there just many? Uh,
2: we have many. We have many. There are a number of foundations that uh, that focus on the energy efficiency and energy as a, uh, efficiency as a uh, primary strategy to uh, deal with the climate crisis. And so, over time, some of those foundations have changed. Uh, but there are um, a number of foundations, including like the Energy Foundation, which is a, a sort of an umbrella of different foundations that that provide uh, funding for work on on energy issues. Uh, but all of the information is available on our website, ACEE.org. Uh You can look at our annual report and we uh, report there on on the whole range of donors that we receive funds from.
1: Uh, just one one question. You said the federal government is somewhat involved. Has their involvement changed based on who's in office since
2: 1980? Uh, not too much. You know, most of our work with the federal government is for uh, is for research uh, that we do on specific issues around energy efficiency, and that has tended to stay pretty constant and um, it doesn't doesn't engage. You know, get uh, mixed up in uh, kind of the political. Uh, stripes that are happening. You know, it's more a matter of what kind of funding the Department of Energy or you know, EPA or other uh, agencies may get uh, from Congress over time. But that's that's still a relatively small part of our overall operating budget. So,
1: got it. And Michael read your background, but what do you do on a day to day basis for your organization? <laughs> yeah, it sounds you like know, it's a pretty a pretty serious profile. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's like
0: wow. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, you know that's a great question and one that um, I've been with AC Triple E. I in, in May I celebrate my 25th anniversary oh, and I'm congratulations. Not sure that my thank you. Um, I'm not sure my parents still understand exactly what it is I do on a day to day basis. So that's a great question. Um, so I do uh, a lot of research um, uh, and work with uh, other researchers on staff. Um, you know, kind of identifying opportunities. Uh, you know, for instance, we worked with. Um, uh, CLASP, which is an organization that works on appliance standards around the world. Uh, with their, uh, in conversation with them, we identified this issue of mercury and lighting and the fact that we now have lighting technologies can, that can eliminate uh, mercury and lighting products. Uh, so we decided to do a research project to really understand, you know, are, are we at a point now with the availability of LEDs that we can uh, start to remove uh, fluorescent lighting from the marketplace. And so uh, putting together a team of researchers to do that research uh, and publish the report, uh, that's one thing. You know, so Wise working on different research projects. Uh, we also provide uh, technical advocacy uh, to uh, the process to develop building codes. Uh, so, for instance, I'm right now a member of the consensus committee for the International Code Council and their work to develop the 2024 International Energy Conservation Code. Um, so that takes up a fair amount of time. Uh, we provide input to the public, uh, public comment processes that the Department of Energy does on appliance standards. Um, and then I'm involved in developing a market transformation program for uh, energy efficient uh, um, indoor agriculture uh, with a, a grant that we have from the U.S. Department of Energy, working with our partners at the Resource Innovation Institute. So a lot of it is, you know, w- uh, reaching out, working with others that are trying to advance efficiency, looking at where those opportunities are, and seeing how we can bring our, our technical expertise, our understanding of uh, program opportunities, including you know, whether it's programs funded by, uh, by states, uh, programs funded by utilities, um, or just uh, opportunities in, uh, in the market, you know, with market actors that are looking to improve efficiency. Um, so all of those things, you know, together, making those partnerships, finding out where those opportunities are, and then either doing the research to get uh, new information and data out into um, out into the world, or to actually engage in processes to advance uh, policy and program design.
0: So I want to talk to you a little bit about Mercury. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I when I'm not recording podcasts, um, I run a, a business that recycles uh, many millions of fluorescent lamps and, and HIDs and CFLs. And then I run another business which sells a lot, not millions. If, if I sold as many as I recycled, I'd be really rich. <laughs> but um, we actually, I actually sell quite a few um, fluorescent lamps and um, HIDs along with LEDs. I do sell lots of LEDs as well. But I'm a true lighting distributor. I sell all the legacy, and I sell all the new stuff as well. Um, the What is the opportunity? You said opportunity when you talked about it. Why do you see it as an opportunity, Mercury, to remove Mercury from lighting?
2: So for a number of reasons. I think first and foremost are the eliminating the health and environmental impacts of Mercury. So we know that even though there are... You know, businesses like yours that are out there collecting uh, fluorescent lamps, uh, recycling them, capturing the mercury. We know that there's a lot of breakage in that system, you know, Mm -hmm. literally and figuratively. Right. There are a lot of products that people are disposing of um, inappropriately. uh, Mm -hmm. And that uh, that's the cause. It's one of the leading causes of mercury in the environment is uh leaching of lamps and other products i, I believe this it's like six low-
0: percent i think the mer- mercury contamination percentage for lighting is six percent i think it's six percent of all mercury contamination is from the lighting industry something like that
2: sure. it's significant yeah. it's not so, huge
0: but a significant number yeah
2: right so so yeah so what i was saying is that of, of products that are purchased right so we're mm-hmm. working to cut down on the number of products that contain mercury particularly if we have viable alternatives now the other way that we're eliminating mercury by proposing this shift away from fluorescence and toward leds is that we know leds are already more efficient than most fluorescent lamps and they're getting more you know the projections are that the technology is going to improve even further and so the more we can reduce energy consumption the more we reduce the number one cause of mercury contamination in the environment, which is power generation sure. uh, from fossil fuels. So, you know, even though we're making this transition to uh, to a cleaner uh, electricity grid, uh, yeah, that's going to take some time. So, given the threat that uh, that mercury can pose, uh when it, particularly when it concentrates uh, in in certain locations. Um, Particularly in our uh, water systems, mm-hmm. uh, we think it's really important to take advantage of any opportunity that we have when we have technology that's viable and that doesn't introduce mercury uh, to to move forward and take that mercury out of out of the system. Uh,
0: what What are you guys proposing with respect to mercury containing lamps?
2: Yeah, so we're proposing um, the the phase out of all of those lamps, that's something that would be done through, a pol- through policy um, at the federal and state level. There are a couple of states that are already working um, on, um, on uh, standards that would eliminate uh, fluorescent products from their marketplace. So we're seeing action in Vermont and in California at this point, and we're beginning to see other states that would be interested in doing this. Um, at the federal level, there are also, um, you know, a host of policies and ways that uh, action could be taken through existing law to, uh, to eliminate mercury-containing products. Um, there are a number of, uh, of uh, hazardous waste laws on the books at the state level and at the federal level that have uh, carve-outs for, uh, for fluorescent lamps. So, you know, for a long time, fluorescent lighting was a great way to remove mercury from the environment. So even though the lamps have a small amount of mercury in them, the benefit with the energy reduction that you got relative to, say, incandescent lamps, uh, by moving to fluorescent, you, you had a net um, a net reduction in mercury just by uh, because of the level of energy reduction, energy use yeah, reduction Yeah, I, I remember that, that from
0: the early 2000s when they were doing CFL... Um rebate programs and stuff. They were saying the societal benefits of energy efficiency exceed the cost of the mercury contamination. But there's other trade-offs. That's right. Um, There's other trade-offs, Jennifer. Um, Are are you proposing a blanket ban?
2: Yes. So unless there are, you know, there may be unique um, unique applications or very, uh, you know, niche products where Uh, there aren't alternatives, and fluorescence might still be the best option. Um, I think those are all cases that could be considered uh, as legislation moves forward. Um, And certainly, um, you know, uh, one example that I'll give you that, you know, in our research, we didn't find um, that there were currently on the market, uh, good LED alternatives for fluorescence that are used in In some UV systems that are doing, uh, you know, whether it's for uh, water purification, air purification, and given the significant health impacts that we see, um, you know, we're seeing an increased interest in these uh, UV lighting systems particularly because of uh, recent circumstances that we're all still dealing with. And so we wouldn't be opposed to, you know, a carve out for those situations. But that's until- not a fluorescent lamp.
0: That's, those aren't fluorescent lamps. Those are mercury lamps or whatever they call them. And if, I mean, I've been in many water treatment yeah. plants and I don't think people realize the amount of lamps that are treating water that, uh, you know, wastewater and drinking water to remove bacteria from it. But so the, the, that's a, the UVC situation would be easily handled because they're, they're really not even fluorescent lamps. And oftentimes mm-hmm. they're made by different manufacturers. Like they're specialty UV manufacturers. I agree. I think that's an interesting yeah. carve out. What I'm concerned yeah, about is so, anyone, let me just ask you a question because okay. you're, you're right on the, right, right on the spot. I wanted to ask it at. Have you considered the, um, the waste against, because when you, when you make these, um, you know, blanket ban a certain ton of, uh, of uh, lamps like they did with the incandescent ban. you know, 90% of all the mercury lamps are probably in two categories. You know what I'm saying? Or three categories or something like that. And then of the last 10% is like 97 categories or 185 different categories. And so if we just targeted like certain HID wattages and certain, um you know, fluorescent links of tube that are easily replaceable by LED and left the rest, it would just disappear on its own eventually without creating all the waste.
2: Sure. Well, you know, the way usually these things work is, you know, there would be, um, there would be some time period, right, before there is a man, you know, the a manufacturing ban. And then usually what would happen after that is, You know, so then whatever had been manufactured up until that date could be sold through the sales channels. So Mm -hmm. you wouldn't just be dumping product that had already been manufactured. You would say, you know, as of, you know, just like we do with efficiency I'm actually talking about the fixtures.
0: I'm talking about the actual fixtures. fixtures. Yeah. Yeah. People are going to have to rip out those fixtures and that all creates carbon and everything mm -hmm. else. I, I think it's a fair question.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is a fair question, and I think if you read our report, you'll see that what we really focused on was looking at opportunities where LEDs are available that can be replace existing existing lamps. So we looked at um, pin based alternatives for um, for pin based CFLs, mm-hmm. and we looked at um, LED tubes that can replace existing. So we were looking at primarily type A. Or hybrid lamps, and looking mm-hmm. at the availability of those as alternatives. So, um, so in most of these cases, you know, we really focused on the lamps that were plug and play, but mm-hmm. we also collected information about lamps that could be uh, that were a ballast bypass opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we really wanted to make sure that we were looking for alternatives that wouldn't require full fixture replacement. Uh, both to eliminate, you know, eliminate waste, but also to uh, improve the economic viability, to to make sure that the market was ready, and that this is something that that uh, that we felt we could uh, we could uh, advocate for in a way that's reasonable, and that would also allow us to to you know to make this change in the shorter you know in a shorter period of time, uh, if if in fact. It was a case of, you know, waiting until if we did have to wait until uh, fixtures were at the end of their useful life, then, you know, that's what we would be advocating for. But we went out and we did the research and we found that the products on the LED side, they're out there, they're available. And um, and in most cases, uh, they're cost effective to go ahead and make that replacement.
0: On your consulting committee, sorry, Greg, just one question. How many, um, like you have a committee that researches this, right? Is it an industry committee or who's on the committee?
2: So um, it's not a committee, it's a research team. So mm-hmm. this is staff from ACEE and uh, the Appliance Standards Awareness Project, which is uh, another group that we work with. Uh, so we've been doing research on uh, lighting technologies, you know, for, um at ACEE since you know really the beginning of our organization, lighting was one of the early technologies we looked at. Um, I've certainly been looking at it over the course of my career. And so we uh, you know did our research through um, uh, talking to manufacturers, talking to uh, retailers, uh, researching um, online resources to see what uh, products are available, what the prices are, how manufacturers are marketing their products um, uh, and the applications that they're marketing their products for. Um, and that's how we did our research. And then our research uh, was, uh, we always send our research out for external review. So the research was reviewed by others uh, in our community, including folks who've worked uh, in lighting for many, many years.
0: Any lighting distributors?
2: Um. We have worked with lighting distributors. I don't know. Um, I don't think any lighting distributors actually uh, commented on our report before we published mm. it.
0: Mm. That would have been good. Okay. My final question on this, I'm going to throw, throw it over to Greg. Did you guys consider the medical category? Because there's a lot of fluorescents used um, for skin diseases, um, you know, all, you know, um, uh, in hospitals. And, and I, I'm, I'm not aware that there's many LEDs that can replace those wavelengths in the, in the, in the tasks they do. Has that been considered in the report?
2: Um, I don't know that we, uh, we considered that directly in the report, but as I said, I think, you know, any, um, it's very common in the work that we do when we work on standards that we look at, um, we look at uh opportunity, you know, we look at where we need to have exceptions. So what we primarily did in our research was we looked at the categories that have been exempted from the federal efficiency standards for fluorescent lighting to see if those were places where there might be opportunities um, to replace fluorescence with LED. Um, So I would say that our report isn't, wasn't exhaustive um, but certainly, um, I think the experience that you'll see with the way uh, the way um, standards have been approached on the energy efficiency side would be the same approach that we would take in, in the case of, uh, of standards um, related to, to mercury, which is, you know, uh, reaching out, bringing in industry, talking about where are those cases where you simply cannot uh, find products that can, can serve a certain application. So if you'll look, you know, like right now uh, the federal standards, you know, they have um, different things, right? So there are some products that are, you know, excluded. There aren't, there are certain standards, you know, could apply, but don't yet, don't now because maybe they have a very small market share. They're a niche product. So that might be things like, you know, three foot and five foot, uh, fluorescent tubes, right? Um, those don't have standards right now. It's because they're a, a small part of the market share. Then there are these products that are exempted and that's because, um, at the time that the fluorescent standards were adopted, they, there weren't good alternatives. And so that includes things like, um, if you give me a moment, I, I want to make sure I have, uh, that I've, I've got the full list here. Um, That includes um, some specialty lighting for um, uh, plant growth, cold temperature application lamps, colored fluorescent lamps, impact resistant lamps, uh, reflectorized or aperture lamps, uh, reprographic equipment, UV lamps, Mm -hmm. high CRI lamps. So these are all things that have been um, exempted in the the federal uh, efficiency standards. So what we wanted to do was say, well, if we're going to look at this from the mercury side and how, you know, what products have been identified already as maybe unique niche uses of fluorescent that, you know, we want to see if there are LED alternatives. And in most of those categories, we found that there were. And in fact, you know, one area that we've been quite interested Uh, An exemption that we've been quite interested in eliminating is the high CRI exemption because we have found that, uh, you know, the high CRI uh, exception was put in Mm -hmm. as a way to maintain a market for high CRI T12 lamps for some, you know, signage applications that were quite common when the new federal efficiency standards that would have uh, uh, eliminated T 12s, because they're, they can't meet Mm -hmm. the efficiency requirements. Um, And so at that time, uh, you know, it, uh, the manufacturers argued that this was a very much a niche product that they would cost too much to replace typical T 12s. But in the time since the fluorescent standards took effect, the latest fluorescent standards took effect, we've seen tremendous growth in the market for high CRI T 12s. So we uh, we're happy to get those off the market. We think those you mean are a high bad CRI deal for LEDs.
0: You, say, you mean a high CRI LEDs? No,
2: high oh, CRI fluorescent lamps. Yeah, oh. high fluorescent, high CRI fluorescent T12s. And so we're very interested in getting those off the market. Those are a bad right. deal for consumers. I agree with you on that. So so I, so anyway so yeah so I'm just saying we you know so we looked at those categories in particular. But I think you know, um, of course, we would be open to. You know, talking with the lighting industry, you know, have others bring into the process um, information about other products that at this time need to be exempted, mm-hmm. and so those are probably items that you know, again, aren't covered by current current uh, efficiency standards, mm-hmm. or maybe they meet the efficiency standards for fluorescent lights, um, and so you know, but they they could use a carve out because they do have a unique application that can't be met by other products.
1: Hmm. Now, how does this relate to the the Clean Lighting Coalition? Because I I saw (laughs) an article about that and it's a global (laughs) ban by 2025. Is this the same thing?
2: So the Clean Lighting Coalition is a project of CLASP and CLASP did fund our work. Um, We have, you'll see in the report we have, uh, we do talk about some of the federal activities that are happening around fluorescence. Um, So uh, the Clean Lighting Campaign has been working specifically on the Minamata Convention, um, the UN Minamata Convention on uh, Mercury. And so they met uh, earlier this year and they have uh, they did agree to um, to a ban on uh, compact fluorescent lamps, including pen based compact fluorescents. But they um, have not yet taken action on uh, tube fluores- on linear fluorescence.
1: So this ban and on so that is is for is for who who where is it banned right now?
2: So well, they're not banned yet, and mm-hmm. so but what that is is that's an international convention. So countries uh, that are a party to the convention uh, would take that back to their countries for whatever ratification process they. Each country has to uh, adopt or not adopt an uh, international standard, mm. and God, so big. this was brought forth by uh, by uh, a number of African countries. I think that have been the subject of a lot of dumping of products mm. as they've become, um, as they've been um, you know removed from the markets in in Europe and the U.S. Uh, because of uh, you know they don't they no longer meet efficiency standards or because the market is moving toward LEDs and so these other countries you know manufacturers go and start you know selling these products very cheap and these countries end up bearing the brunt of ongoing mercury pollution and other um energy waste that's not you know that's that um that the developed countries have moved beyond so they were uh, there's been an interest in in doing that as a way to Continue to remove mercury from products in the marketplace.
1: So, your your guys' strategy, your, your initiative, is you put together this uh, report, is where it's at right now. And then, what are the next steps from here?
2: So, the next steps from here. So, our um, the our, our partners at the Appliance Standards Awareness Project, uh, they actually work on uh, state level policy, and so they are working in Vermont and California. And we'll be looking for other, at other states that have, uh, mercury standards. Um, you know, they have laws on the books. Um, and states that may not have those laws yet, but are interested. So we have a, uh, in the report, we outline what states have different policies around, uh, around mercury containing products. So, you know, in some cases, they may have, uh, banned sales of other products that contain mercury. Um, They may just have rules around purchasing of products by the state. You know, there's there are different types of policies. So they're working um, with the states to identify opportunities to adopt um, adopt policies that would um, either uh, eliminate the um, the carve out for for lighting products or uh, introduce other mechanisms to um, phase out. Mercury-containing lamps, specifically fluorescents.
1: Sure, and the the goal is to get all fifty states to do this. So you're going to have to have fifty different decisions on it. You can't do it from a federal level down.
2: (laughs) You you could potentially do it. Yeah, you could do it from the federal level. And you know what we have found is that with efficiency standards, um, often what has happened is as um, as a number of states have adopted standards on new products. you know, there. Uh, you know, we're often then able to work with industry to come up with a proposal for the federal government. Uh, now, you know, with efficiency standards, there is um, the, an existing process for that. You know, the uh, through the Department of Energy uh, to adopt standards. Um, sometimes, if it's a new product, we are uh, we will work with industry um, and maybe talk to uh, talk to. Uh, folks on Capitol Hill about the potential for a legislative approach. And so that is something that could happen here as well. But that's not something that we're working on yet.
1: Sure. Do you have a, do you have a goal in mind in terms of a date that you want this to happen by?
2: Um, No, we haven't been working, um, you know, um, on anything like that at this point. Um, Our goal with this research was really just to provide information um, to, uh, to state and federal government, to um, to advocates that are working on mercury issues in particular, since that's not really an area that we have focused on as much. Mm. Um, about this opportunity and how, um, in our um, based on our research, we believe that there are um, adequate and cost-effective alternatives to um, to fluorescent lamps. Um, available now with the with the emergence of uh, the high efficiency LED alternatives.
0: I um I love the way you use the word opportunity. I think that's what <laughs> it is. Actually, it's, it's like like a, there's an <laughs> opportunity to have less pollution. <laughs> like it's yeah, that's great. Let's do yeah. that. So I, I largely agree with it, but from you know my view, like I I think I agree with what you're doing. The the ethical case, the moral case for it. You know all the reasons why, the background research and all the stuff. I just wonder to myself when I when I if someone said call again, Mister Lighting Distributor. Is if most people don't care what I say, but you know <laughs> what would you do? You know you sell these light bulbs mm-hmm. every day to people, and you try to tell them to buy the LED, and they still buy the fluorescent. So what would you do, right? I think, and, and I'm not you know I'm not proposing that I know more than the AC Triple E. So please. Except my, you know, I'm just postulating on a podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I would just start targeting SKUs, like individual SKUs. I would say no more four foot T8 LEDs gone. All of them are gone. No more 400 watt metal halide. No more 250 watt metal halide. No more 175 watt. Uh, but you know what? We're going to keep the 1500 watt because you know I, I I know the ones that the I know the ones that are needed and the ones that aren't needed. You know, and so it's like. I would do it the, I know you guys are going like, what areas can we keep? I think it, to me, I think it's like you would, if you just got rid of those lamps I just said, that's probably 95%. You know what I'm saying? I mean, of all the mercury and lighting right there and those six, you know, maybe add a few more in there, you know what I mean? But I mean, largely eight foot T12s are gone. I mean, there's not really that many out there. I used to have skids and skids of them back there. Now I have one case of each, you know, and we sell it once a year. You know, someone calls up. Hey, do you want F ninety six T twelve cool white hiopone? How about Sign Hero from Keystone instead, But You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's 2022. No, I want those ones. Okay, fine. Here you go. But um, so yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that uh, you know, I, I in my mind, it's like just get rid of these ten things. You know what I mean? Like, I I I, I don't mean to be. Like oversimplify it, perhaps. But there's like it's maybe twenty products that would be ninety five percent of all, maybe ninety nine percent of all the mercury in lighting. You know? Um, Yeah.
2: Can I respond a little bit?
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, no,
2: because I think you know, I think that um, you know, one of the reasons that we've put out the report, and I would say we have not, um, uh, you know, the report doesn't make specific. You know, we don't get into the specifics of what the policy would look like. And that's because we know that, you know, effective policymaking requires input from, uh, from the consumers, from the businesses that are involved, from, mm. from the full marketplace. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you say that you don't, may not know as much as ACEEE. Well, we certainly don't know as much as you guys who are out there mm. working as lighting distributors, yeah. you know, so you have a lot to offer to, uh, to making sure that we have effective policy. Um, I will say that what we have found through, you know, with appliance standards that, is that um you know t- typically um the the broader you can be the easier it is to set a policy that mm. um that works and that can be uh, effectively um effectively implemented and that compliance can be assured so um you know to um and that you know so that retailers for instance don't have to um you know, be as concerned about, you know, which, which skews they can carry and which ones they can't anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, you know, what we have found with efficiency standards is that, you know, once a product is no longer manufactured, your customer that says, you know, that still wants the fluorescent, even though the LED would provide, you know, equivalent performance, they just won't have that option anymore. Now, people have arguments about you know whether or not people should be able to buy whatever they want to buy but at the end of the day if economically it makes sense for them to go with the LED and from a societal standpoint it makes sense for us to have these better products in the market then you know at some point I, we, we just need to do that right we I we, agree we, with you. I we agree can, with you. we be- can do that and then we can move on. But um, so so that's why I think you kind of um, you know that's why typically the approach is to identify those unique places where there aren't no. alternatives, or you know if for some reason you know there was some application where it was just much more expensive. And I'll give you an example. So one of the things that was done when the fluorescent lighting standards came into effect, uh, we knew that there were a lot of residential customers that still had uh, you know T12 fixtures with magnetic ballasts in their basement. Those things were gonna last, you know, those, those ballasts uh, were gonna last forever, <laughs> right? Especially they if they had
0: PCBs in them. If they have PCBs yeah. in them, they're still going yeah. now from yeah. 40 years ago. So
2: that's gonna last forever. You know, the lights have a very low use cycle. So what we did, because we we wanted to say, well, in a commercial application, It totally makes economic sense to move on, even if they have to replace the fixture. But for these users, it doesn't. So that's when you got, you know, the the um, you could include things in policy like you you sell the lamps in one or two lamp packages that are labeled Mm. that they're for residential use, right? So you're really Mm. still serving that niche market Mm. without, you know, and minimizing the the negative impact you know, that that still has. Is that so policy already, is that it.
0: already been done? Because I noticed that Home Depot and Lowe's and these places have all their eight foot tubes in two packs. You can't go in there and buy a case. Is that actually been implemented?
2: Yes.
0: That's a great idea. <laughs> that's Because yeah. the contractors <laughs> would go in there and just buy the case and go. But the contractors would be like, how many pa- packages of these two do I have? That's interesting. That's an interesting nudge. That's a little nudge. Yeah.
2: So, so you know, so there are, um, you know, so there is the opportunity. You know, I think here I go again. There are ways to be flexible <laughs> in um, in policy making, and I think one of the ways that we get these effective policies, as I've said, is looking at, you know, what does this mean? You know, how can the retailers, uh, lighting distributors, you know, manufacturers, uh, consumers, how can we all work together? to come up with a solution that's that's effective, helps us reach our goals but does not uh create an undue burden on anyone.
0: I I you know I was thinking in my the the the, the kind of adage I was thinking is kind of you need the carrot and the stick. Um <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so <And> then, <laughs> uh we're running out of time so I want to change gears if it's okay with you Greg. I want to I want to yeah, talk sure. about another thing that you brought up and that's energy efficiency and and so I'm a I'm a Uh, you know, an avid reader, say, I listen mostly on, so uh, for all you, you know, reading snobs, I'm an audible guy, but anyway, so I listen to a lot of nonfiction books and I particularly like ones that are about catastrophes, collapses, environmental collapses, and all these different kinds, Jared Diamond and and authors like that. And the message that kind of resonates, and we interviewed one of them on our podcast, the name escapes me right now, wonderful lady, Um, but she had specifically pointed out that mitigation is is paves the road to collapse and that if you you can't mitigate yourself out of a water crisis you can't mitigate your way out of like the idea that the lighting industry should be should bear the load because we have bear the load of energy efficiency mitigation um has caused a lot of problems in lighting that that idea that you know um the race for lumens per watt, um, the has created a lot of bad lighting, flickering lighting, burning out too quickly, purple street lights, light pollution galore, you know, um, a lot of problems. And so why not the focus on generating clean energy? Like, you know, whether that's nuclear or hydroelectric, like it seems to me that, you know, the mitigation, I want to be able to use like, problem with a place like the Congo say okay it's not that there's there is pollution in the Congo the problem is that there's no energy there like literally there's no electricity you know the problem with places like California is happening you know, they're having rolling blackouts they don't have enough electricity this causes massive problems and so I often look at like you know people talk well, we want to address our climate change responsibility in lighting and I think well why don't we just focus everything on the creation of clean electricity so we can use as much of it as we want.
2: Well, so I, um, is that a question? Right? That's a question, yeah,
0: why not do that? <laughs> okay, like, yeah. I and I, I mean, were... I'm, I'm sure you're gonna give me a great oh, well, answer, but. <laughs> yeah,
2: um, I'll, you know, I'll do my best. So certainly, you know, we, um, I don't work on renewable energy, but I'm certainly a huge proponent of renewable energy. Um, but one of the best ways to make to make renewables a, a viable option for us in the short-term, in the short-term time that we have to deal with climate change, is to eliminate energy waste. If you can make your home more efficient, then you can purchase a solar array that can provide all of your needs and maybe feed some of that energy back to the grid. So we know that, you know, the less demand we have, the easier it will be for us to uh, make that shift to renewables and meet more of our need with renewables. Because at this point, we know there are still some challenges, right? There are time challenges. Um, You know, it turns out that, you know, we get solar is great in the middle of the day and wind is great in the middle of the night um we're still we're working to the, so we're working on storage storage is great but it's going to take us a while to to transfer our whole system and we need to be acting on carbon now we need to act on climate now i mean the latest ipcc report tells us that things are getting really serious and we're we're at danger of not meeting um even arts our, our uh, extended goals so um if we're able to, you know, um, another example are, you know, some of the difficulties that they've had in California and other places as they have brought um, additional renewables on the grid um, without having the, the reliable or the degree of storage that we need. You have these weird pockets of time where, you know, everybody comes home from work, it's getting mm-hmm. dark, everybody turns mm-hmm. their power on at once and there's no more solar. And so, you know, we're seeing these shifting, you know, weird shifting peaks in terms of when we need to use non-renewable resources. And so anything that we can do, again, to to eliminate some of that load is gonna help us buy time and help us um, make sure we can make that transition to the clean grid that we're all looking for in the future. Um, And I think, you know, that's really, what we want to do. So I don't think, you know, we're not talking about an either or it's mm-hmm. really, you know, we have multiple solutions and they all have a role to play uh, to ensure that we get to the most, uh, the most optimal um, outcome in the shortest period of time.
0: We have a problem though, Jennifer, mm, there's a big problem. There's two shooting yeah. stars. They're coming at each other and they're going to collide. Okay. <laughs> that, and one of them is called circadian entrainment and the other is called energy efficiency. And those two things, and I'm I'm not you know I'm not I'm not a scientist I'm not Mark Ray I'm not Mariana Figueroa I'm sure they could comment deeper on this, but those two things are kind of at odds with one another, um, the health effects side you know where it's more light indirect light light on vertical walls, and these types of standards, um, yeah you can do a lot with fenestration and sun tunnels and skylights and all this kind of stuff but that's limited to the basically the single family home. Most office towers can't put in more windows or, you know, the the existing building stock we can, can only do that to a limited, limited degree. And so we Mm -hmm. have these two shooting stars coming at one another and one saying, I need more energy for circadian lighting. And this is, this is good for humans and this is healthy. And the other one saying, you need to continue to lose less energy so that we can accomplish these goals. How do we reconcile this? Or is there, is there any, any conversations about that going on?
2: Yeah, sure. You know, I think there are uh, a lot of conversations, you know, we can look at how um, how we can continue to improve uh, the efficiency of lighting that is, you know, that can meet um, a full spectrum of needs, you know, that that better address um, what we're learning about human biology and our reliance um, on the right light for for healthy functioning and um, you know all the improvements that we've seen, you know um, with the work that that um, that Mark and, and Mariana and others that you mentioned have done, um, but I think you know we can continue to work on uh, on technologies that help us do that, but we can also look for where those where there are opportunities to um, to capture efficiency, right? So mm. you know because it's a mixed bag, you know I think. I do a lot of work um, in indoor agriculture, as you mentioned, and really mm-hmm. looking at how um, the work that's being done to improve LEDs as an option for lighting for plant growth. So I think mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of um, a lot of overlap there, right? Like you know lighting as lighting is more than illumination, but lighting for for biological processes. Um, so, but there are lots of other places, you know. If we can, um, as we move forward in this sort of you know clean energy revolution, we might free up the opportunity over time to sort of reconfigure and bring back in some technologies that um, that that we're able to focus on only you know only focus on the wavelengths that we're getting and what we what we need. Um, so I don't think we necessarily have to ditch one in favor of the other. I think it's yeah. a, um, you know, it's a it's a more complex system than that. And certainly, as we can um, uh, identify where we can make as many efficiency improvements, where we can start to bring on, you know, full more clean energy resources, then you know, we can continue to work on the on the technology uh, to make sure that we're balancing, right? Human health and everything else. But I don't know that, you know, as, um, you know, as we continue to face the disruption that's caused by climate, and as we think about, um, you know, sort of the, the disruptions that'll be happening in the future, yeah, you know, those uh, some of these other issues may be, you know, um, are um, I don't want to say they're luxuries because I know you know it's important for human health, but I think you know we really um, need to think about how we can balance these outcomes and really deal with uh, deal with um, this immense threat that we're facing, and if we do that right, we'll be in a much better place to deal with. Um, you know how we can um, make advances in health beyond the things that mm. we've you know we've seen before.
0: You know I can't believe we've spoken for fifty minutes already. The, the, you know Jennifer, <laughs> <can't> this <laughs> is this is my this has been my favorite podcast of the year. I'm telling you right now, and I feel like I could go in a million directions. And uh, Greg's reminding me, hey, you know we we want to we want to keep it. You know we don't want to have these two hour podcasts. So um, <laughs> I I want to propose something to you. And, and, uh, you know, you've been in this game quite a while and, you know, you've seen different, you know, you're talking about mercury, you're talking about, you know, climate change, you're talking about these different problems that we face environmentally created by industry and, you know, and, and that we truly want to solve. Um, and I've been proposed. I, I also do a show called the restoring darkness podcast, which is focused on darkness, preservation, and restoration. And, and that is, um, we've come to learn over the course of 40 episodes or so in that show that actually light pollution is pollution. It's not a metaphor. It causes lots of problems from human health all to animal welfare to, you know, all sorts of different things that are real and impact us. And I, I've been proposing, you know, very quietly to people, just, you know, friends and in the lighting industry, sometimes on the show a little bit here and there, but I think that the lighting industry and anybody that's kind of orbiting the industry in a way like the the ACEEE kind of orbiting around it and saying hey guys look over here pay attention we're going to do this what about this law you know I think that and call me crazy I've been called crazy many times it won't offend me at all but I think the lighting industry should do this they should say our number one mission our only moral and ethical obligation is the elimination of light pollution now why would I say that okay um, because it's a problem we can solve. Climate change is not a problem we can solve right now. It's something that we have to have emerging technologies. we got to invent stuff. we got to figure out if we're going to do nuclear power or if we're going to do solar or whatever to get away, from the, get away from the fossil fuels. But light pollution is completely and totally solvable, 90% of it or whatever. And if we solved it, we would contribute both to energy efficiency and climate change in doing so. And so the, the the end goal solves the other ones as well. What how do you feel about that proposition?
2: Um you know, I think that's great. I um I'm like you, I'm a proponent of uh, dark skies. Um I've you know, I've been uh, uh railing at the uh proposals for um I live in Baltimore and our you know our mayor and uh, the city council is you know looking for money and they want to you know create some big uh, you know electronic signage lighting thing that we don't have and I'm like why you know we don't we don't need that right like let's have some darkness so I'm I'm completely with you and I do think that um uh that that's a great idea you know and I and I have to say you know the um, all kudos to the lighting industry for uh, the significant advancements that have been made. I mean, if you uh, if you look at where we were 20, 30 years ago to where we are now, mm-hmm. um, all of the work that's been done to get us where we are on LEDs, I mean, mm-hmm. we haven't even had a chance to talk this morning about the, you know, the Washington Post had an exclusive that, um, that then the, uh, standards on, uh, incandescence are coming out of DOE this week. So, uh, you know, we're really seeing, um, you know, a, a huge change. I mean, you can see in the, um, in the, in the energy use surveys that DOE does for uh, residential and commercial buildings, you can see lighting is one of the end uses that is ratcheting down and becoming a smaller and smaller part of building's energy consumption mm-hmm. because of the advances that the industry has made. We did it, baby. <laughs> we did so it. we've done a lot, but you know, we haven't done that yet, right? Like mm-hmm. getting, uh, dealing with light pollution, um, moving forward with uh, outdoor fixture standards, that uh, that really do eliminate what we know we can eliminate um, around uplight and the other issues that contribute to to lighting pollution. Um, so um, you know I agree with you, and uh, you know I I I know we're running out of time. I'd love to talk to you about it more, and you know what mm-hmm. we could do to help move that that case forward, um, because I think you know. The other thing that I think is is really great about um, the uh, your determination that this is a problem that can be solved um, is that anytime we can show our ability to address an environmental issue successfully,
0: oh, yes, I love you, Montreal Protocol. Drive. Montreal Protocol. Yes, I
2: was thinking the same thing. It helps us understand, and it helps. It gives people hope that we can. We can. Um, address the climate crisis, which is, you know, so all-consuming, um, if we, you know, if you let yourself uh, get bogged down in it. Um, but I will take an um, issue that, I don't think we need to develop a lot, we need to improve technologies, but we really are in a great place to, to move ourselves um, beyond fossil fuels and address climate. You know, energy efficiency can get us half the way there, our studies show. Um, we know that uh, bringing more renewables online. I think it's really more of a political um, uh, issue to address now, um, and that in order to do it, we'll have to, uh, you know, really um, begin to address the power of the fossil fuel industry um, and ensure that we can uh, bring about, you know, a full suite of policies that move us forward. And um, the mercury issue is one, but you know that also has the climate impact. Um, and certainly uh, uh, bringing back our dark skies so we can see the stars in the cities would be a fantastic addition as well.
0: Jennifer, this has been so wonderful and I I really appreciate it, but I'm gonna leave you with a little bit of bragging, okay? Okay, please. uh, Not not enough people know this. And I think you mentioned the corporate fossil fuel interest. I think this might have something to do with it. Um, Ontario has too much clean energy. Okay. So the, I listened to a speech, and so does Quebec, by the way. Um, I listened to a speech by the president of Ontario Power Generation at an electric vehicles conference a couple of years ago, and the listeners are all going, oh, call again, you're saying it again. But he stood up and said, if everyone in Ontario buys an electric car, the price of electricity will go down in Ontario. Because right now, we have to pay the US states to take our clean energy. If to pay them to take our clean energy and if we just also focus and i'm going to add this and i think i'm correct if we added some enhancements to our grid our electrical grids and we added some enhancements like that cross-border trade that um not forced but maybe incentivized them to stop burning coal and start using ontario clean nuclear and quebec clean uh hydro Instead of supporting their 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 local uh, coal fire and, and, and gas power plants, I think it would be a wonderful opportunity to start right now because Ontario's got way, way too much electricity um, and it's clean it, like, I, and, and I, the Premier of Ontario is not yelling this from the rooftops. I don't understand that and all we hear about is Alberta, Alberta, Alberta. But come on Ontario you've got a beautiful resource it's all built it's all good you know let, let's get it across the border where we can where people can use it. I mean so that grid integration strategies about distribution of electricity I think is such a wonderful topic to to add on to all the ones you listed there. Um, any final thoughts? Yeah
2: Well, you know just to that point I think you know um, maybe um, um, an energy summit between, uh, the U.S. and Canadian governments to figure out how together we could work out, um, you know, better uh, resource, a better, more integrated um, approach to our to meeting our uh, energy needs, um, and to addressing climate uh, could could take us a long way.
0: I think it could cooperation is always a great thing. I just love this podcast, Greg. This is one of my fa- this is my favorite one ever, and I, I'm going to ask I'm going to invite <laughs> you to come on the Restoring Darkness podcast as well, if that's okay, Jennifer. Um, Love We to. are we're going to post all of the links uh, on the website, so if you want to go to the uh. A Triple to- Twitter account, it's at aceedc, and their website is at triplee And Greg, what about TCP? What's going on with those guys? They're getting crazy with those corn cobs. You're going to get rid of those 175 <laughs> watt metal halides and put in a 30 watt LED bulb come on man that's right
1: you don't need the mercury anymore right you can go right to the corn cob killer and we talked about the advancements of led lighting that's what tcp did the corn cob was an advancement and they said we can do better and they came out with a corn cob killer higher lumens per watt fit the profile of the mercury lamps that we have all over the place and different kelvin temperatures and wattages available
0: Beautiful for those hard-to-retrofit applications, folks. Come on. I know you want to sell fixtures and all that sort of stuff. You don't want to go screw in a light bulb. But, hey, if you have an environmental thing, the best thing to do is change it to an LED light bulb. That is the least waste, the most efficiency, everything else. Change the light bulb to LED and leave it in there. And, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, where lighting means business. That's right. We're having our convention with ArcLight in September the 13th in Dallas. Come on down. Hang out with us. And of course I know we went a little bit off topic on the on the from lighting a little bit, but come on, man. That's some juicy stuff. We're talking mercury, mitigation of the oh yeah, that's what I get into the juice. Folks, you made it to the
2: end here. You know we love you guys and gals. Bye for now.